causing Novalis. We are on a mission. Our vocation is the education of the earth. Modern expressionism rests on an assumption that was so self-evident to human beings of earlier times that it almost never had to be explicitly formulated. For our predecessors, nature presented an infinitely superior, and hence an immeasurably resilient, outside realm that absorbed all human discharges and ignored every act of exploitation. This idea of spontaneous nature determined humanity's history until just recently. Even today we have numerous contemporaries who cannot and do not wish to understand that we will need to fundamentally change our thinking on this point. The expressionistic character of lifestyles in today's affluent civilizations has nevertheless made clear that nature's indifference to human activities was an illusion suited to the age of ignorance. There are limits to expression, limits to emission, limits to the indulgence of ignorance. And because there are such limits, even if we do not know exactly where to draw the line, the seemingly immemorial idea of nature as a kind of externality that absorbs everything begins to falter. We suddenly feel it necessary to entertain an idea that appears contrary to nature, namely that the terrestrial sphere as a whole has been transformed by human praxis into a single great interior. Buckminster Fuller wanted designers to take responsibility for this harrowing turning point and demanded a comprehensive and anticipatory mode of thought from them. Such thought is supposed to make world planning in the quote-unquote human beings total communication system on, on spaceship Earth possible. Forty years after the publication of Buckminster Fuller's manifesto, turns out that it was not so much designers who were concerned with implementing the new idea of the world as a macro interior, but rather meteorologists. It is evident to us that not design, but meteorology has come to power. It has prevailed politically and scientifically, since for the moment it provides the most suggestive model of the global interior. It is concerned with the dynamic continuum of the terrestrial sphere of enclosed gases, which from the time of the ancient Greek natural philosophers has been called the atmosphere, literally vapour orb. Conversations about the weather have ceased to be harmless, ever since climate scientists established that the atmosphere retains things in its memory banks, as it were. The atmosphere never entirely forgot the chimney smoke of the early industrial revolution, and it will not ignore anything released into it by the coal-fired power stations of developed countries. The district heating power plants of megacities, the airplanes, the ships, the automobiles of the affluent, and the countless open fires of the poor on every continent although normally half of such emissions is absorbed by the oceans and atmosphere. To be sure, other remnants of dubious human behaviour are preserved by the earth. Even now we still find horseshoes in the North German mud that provide evidence of Roman cavalry's passage. The German soil is neither heated nor cooled by the presence of these Roman horseshoes. In contrast, the earth's atmosphere is a delicate disposal site. It shows a tendency to respond to past and present emissions by warming up. If meteorologists are speaking the truth, 
We should expect climate change in many parts of the world to result in situations that are not conducive to human existence as we have known it. Meteorologists have thus taken on the role of reformers. They call on human beings in industrial nations, as well as developing ones, to change their lifestyles. They demand nothing less than the decarbonisation of civilization in the middle term, and a broad renunciation of the enormous conveniences of a fossil fuel-based modus vivendi. And these beliefs represent a turning point so fundamental that we are justified in employing grand analogies. The change in thinking that is required of 21st century human beings runs deeper than the 16th century reformations in which the rules that govern transactions between earth and heaven were revised. It immediately brings to mind the voice of John the Baptist who called for total change. The voice from the desert then called for nothing less than a metanoia which had, was intended to replace the trivial egotistical ethos of everyday life with a heart's own moral state of exception. This call was supposed to trigger the permanent revolution that we call Christianity. Finally, the demand to rethink things today even recalls Plato's subtle remark in his dialogue The Sophist, according to which the quarrel between the friends of the ideas, commonly known as idealists, and the admirers of perceptible bodies, commonly known as materialists, over the meaning of being amounts to a kind of gigantomachy, a battle that will last as long as there are human beings around to vote for one side or the other due to the contentiousness of the issue itself. The current battle over the climate no longer aims at the world domination that commentary of the imperialist age were fond of talking about, commentators of the imperialist age. On the contrary, it is concerned with the possibility of keeping the civilizing process open and ensuring its progress, following the mutual discovery of cultures through long-distance commerce between the 16th and 20th centuries, this process led to a provisional synthesis of global agency through trade and diplomacy. It is expected to soon develop into the positive collaboration of cultures within common institutions capable of action. Although we leave aside the question of whether humanity is even able to constitute a coherent we, or a volonté générale. Only two things are certain at the moment. First, that the meteorological reformation that has just begun opens up the prospect of an age of major conflicts. Second, that the 21st century will go down in history as a carnival of redemptive vanities, at the end of which human beings will long for redemption from redemption and salvation from saviours. At the same time, it heralds an era of hypocrisy and the double standard. Nevertheless, beyond vanity, panic and hypocritical rhetoric, this age will continually confront the question of whether to set up something like a stabilising regime on board the spaceship Earth. It should be borne in mind that, from the outset, we must have modest expectations regarding the concept of stabilisation. Cultural evolution knows no stable equilibrium. At best, it can segue from one livable state of disequilibrium to the next. The contours of the coming gigantomachy can already be recognised today. The idealistic party is here expressed by the advocates of a new modesty. 
they confront their materialist adversaries with the demand that all forms of kinetic expressionism have to be reduced to an eco-political minimum. If we have understood that this expressionism is identical to the modus vivendi of affluent cultures on the planet, that indeed it permeates the totality of our metabolism of nature, our production, our consumption, our housing, our business, our arts and communications, and that in each of these domains we still have every indication that there will be no disruption in growth and improvement, then one thing immediately becomes clear. The ethics of the future, hostile to expression and emission, aims precisely at the reversal of civilization's direction to this point. It demands reduction where increase was previously on the agenda. It demands minimization where maximization used to hold sway. It wants restraint where explosions were formerly permitted. It describes thrift where profligacy was once considered to be particularly appealing. And it calls for self-circumspection where self-liberation was until now celebrated. If we think these reversals through to the end, then over the course of the meteorological reformation we arrive at a kind of ecological Calvinism. This position is based on the principle that humanity has only one earth at its disposal. Hence, it may not demand from its basis more than the latter has to give, on penalty of self-destruction. Globalisation paradoxically works against its own fundamental tendency. By carrying out expansions across the board, it enforces restrictions across the board. In wishing to make affluence a general condition, globalisation discovers that ultimately it is only the opposite of affluence, frugality for all, that is practicable on a human scale. Excuse me, practicable on a global scale. With that said, the giants who will join battle in the impending 21st century emerge. We are witnessing the struggle between expansionism and minimalism. We are supposed to choose between the ethics of fireworks and the ethics of asceticism. We will feel the contending alternatives reflected in our attitude towards life and note how we alternate between states of manic profligacy and depressive thrift. Nietzsche sometimes remarked about the star that, to an outside intelligence, it must seem like an ascetic star, on which an elite of depressive spiritualists driven by resentment call the shots. The 20th century has seen the affluent part of the earth enjoy a hedonistic interlude might be over before the 21st century has ended. Should the heralded reformation lead to a meteorological socialism, the earth would soon appear, from an outsider's perspective, to be a frugal star. Every single human being on it would be entitled to a small emission credit, which is due him or her as shareholder in the atmosphere and the other elements. Since Nietzsche was at the same time an expert in questions of gigantomachies and contention between the gods, he knows that neutrality is impossible in conflicts of this magnitude, and writes about this in The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music. Quote, it is the enchantment of these struggles that whoever sees them must also struggle with them himself. End quote. In wealthy nations, each citizen will not only stage the gigantomachy in their own breast, they will also publicly declare which side they have taken, with their own decisions on what to consume. <laughs>